It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Imagine 50 Israelis and 50 North Americans living and learning together, creating an international community of Jewish diversity where both our similarities and differences have value. These are not your typical scholars in residence. They're high school seniors. The Chavuta program is a pluralistic gap year opportunity unlike any other. Combining nine months of study and social engagement, the Hartman's Chavuta gap year program in Jerusalem bridges language, demographic, and historical differences between young North Americans and Israelis. Students leave as a community of equals, ready to enter the next stage of life with confidence, conscience, and enriched Jewish identity. See how you can join us in Jerusalem next year at shalomhartman.org forward slash chavuta. Hello and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Ilana Steinhain, Director of Faculty at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and I'm filling in for Yehuda Kurtzer this week. A highly visible and important community in the tapestry of American Jewry is modern orthodoxy. Today, we're going to talk about modern orthodoxy, how it's positioned itself between more right-wing orthodoxy and liberal denominations in America through the lens of a very important figure who shaped the ideology of modern orthodoxy in the late 20th century. And that is Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory, Zichrona Levercha, who passed away in May 2020 at the age of 92. He was the president and chancellor of Yeshiva University Modern Orthodoxy's flagship university and rabbinical school for nearly 40 years. He shaped the movement in really significant ways, not only as an institution builder and as a rabbi as well, by the way, a pulpit rabbi of the Jewish Center in New York City, but as a theologian and a philosopher writing over 15 books on theories of religious life. Today, we're going to talk about him with three people who all have varying relationships to him or to the institutions that he shaped. I'm pleased to be joined today by Tova Warburg-Sinensky. Tova is an advisor on Jewish law pertaining to the laws of family purity, known in Hebrew as Yoetzet Halacha. Avi Helfand is the Vice Dean for Faculty and Research and a Professor of Law at Pepperdine Caruso School of Law. He is also a Hartman Fellow. Shlomo Zukier, my third guest, is a research fellow at Notre Dame Center for Philosophy of Religion and Contemporary American Life, and he is a David Hartman Center fellow this year at Hartman North America. All three of them wrote beautiful essays in the tribute volume of Tradition, a modern Orthodox journal in September of 2021, and we are pleased to have them talk about Rabbi Lamb and his legacy and the shape of modern Orthodoxy in America today. I want to start by talking to you, Tova, who, in addition to your bio and your career, you are also a granddaughter of Rabbi Lamb. I want to ask you about his personality as someone who is both 
an intellectual visionary and thinker, but also an institution builder, and what insight you can give us into who he was. Growing up, I was very much shielded from the fact that my grandfather was a big deal and the real deal. And my siblings and I knew that he was on the public stage and all that, but it was never presented to us as, wow, Zaid is really famous and big, etc. So, for example, was it typical to be picked up by your grandfather's chauffeur to go shopping for Yom Tov clothing? Not really so typical, but did we think twice about it? Not really. Or... Was it typical to be at my grandparents for dinner and be told, oh, the chief rabbi of Bnei Brock is coming for dinner? Not typical, but was it presented as if it was anything out of the ordinary by my grandfather or my grandmother? Definitely not. And I never heard my grandfather talk about himself as if he was on a different plane than any other person. And perhaps we can talk about that. Uh, I know his, his version of Torah Umada has been challenged on the grounds that perhaps it only applies to certain scholars and intellectuals. And I think that's perhaps because my grandfather was humble and believed that we're all capable of being scholars and intellectuals. Despite all of these experiences that I had, I had this disconnect in my life. And when people would say to me, oh, you're Rabbi Lamb's granddaughter, I, I never really understood what they were saying because the person that I knew was a grandfather and not somebody who was full of himself and presented himself as if he was the very important person that he was. So I think that's really one of the salient features of his personality. Avi, you grew up in his shul. You grew up in his synagogue. What was he like as your pulpit rabbi? The Rabbi Lamb, capital T, capital R, capital L. You know, it's kind of crazy listening to Tova describe Rabbi Lamb that way. You know, when his final years at the Jewish Center, he, I wasn't born yet. Um, I'm feeling old these days, but not like quite that old. But he still kind of was around a little bit giving periodic sermons until they found somebody who would replace him. And during those times, the periodic sermons, actually, my father would give sermons on a monthly rotation. And so, so many of the stories in my household from Rabbi Lamb came from that time period. I just remember, like, in subsequent years, I have this vivid memory of Rabbi Lamb at Camp Morasha when I was a counselor there, having come up for, I think it was um, Tisha B'Av. For everyone, let's just make sure this is clear. Ninth of Av, major day of mourning, fasting on the Jewish calendar. Ripe for informal Jewish education, let's put it that way. Camp is definitely a good place to be on that day. And I, I just have this vivid memory of like wanting to go up to talk to him, but being way too scared. And I was with a friend of mine, not going to mention, I'm tempted to mention his name, but let's leave it aside. And I remember the person I was working for, like commenting how we were like these, like, like little cubs, like scared to go up and talk to the lion. Like that was the metaphor um, because of just like in my mind's eye, he was such a towering figure that like even coming into physical proximity was something that was hard to get over. So interesting because during the Shiva, our family received like hundreds of visits and letters from numerous correspondences that my grandfather had with people of all ages all over the world. And they're in his files as well. And it's just amazing because, you know, you're saying you're scared to go up to him, but he was so approachable and he actually spent time reaching out to all of these people every week. And we only found out about this, you know, after he passed away. Tova, you must remember that when I was in my first year at Columbia as an undergrad, I was so overwhelmed by being in a new secular atmosphere. Do you remember? And you said, you know, why don't you go talk to my 
why don't you go talk to my grandfather? And I had thought of him as like Tova's grandfather, you know, that's just <laughs> what it is. And I walk into that office and I, I see it's like, you know, the many doors leading up to the Holy of Holies. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like first you get on the Temple Mount and then you move a little bit forward. And the secretary's like, sit here, Dr. Lamb will be here shortly. And I was like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be very intimidated now. I did not realize what a big deal this person was because he never acted that way when I was talking to him as, as your friend. But Shlomo, you, you had probably different interactions with him, right? Because you're really through the university. And I don't know where he was when you started there, like where he was in his career. So I started at MTA, YU's high school. I caught the last two years of Rabbi Lamb's presidency and actually uh, caught a Shir Klali, like a public Talmud lecture he gave to the whole yeshiva. They had some high school students join as well. Um, I heard him speak publicly a few times and met with him, I think, once. But my perspective on Rabbi Lamb is more based on the institution that he built. And I think you really could see his influence on all the different levels, you know, the high school, the college, the yeshiva, the uh, graduate school of Jewish studies, each in its own way, really had his imprint on it. And the institution that he built with the values and the educational goals, it really trickled down to all the levels. Even the high school rabbis who weren't really bought into his ideology of Torah Umada, that was, that's what they would talk about. Well, so let's pause for a second, because this is the second time we're mentioning this term Torah Umada, which is really a stand-in for Torah and secular knowledge, because Rabbi Lamb did an incredible service by articulating what the theory, what the religious contribution is of studying secular knowledge. And mind us, I mean, he went to Polytechnic Institute after he finished college. I mean, he was a scientist in addition to all of his other abilities, his PhD. I mean, he really believed in secular knowledge as a pursuit that could be a religious pursuit. But I'm curious, Shlomo, you know, can you talk a little bit about what you saw as the challenges with regards to this idea of secular knowledge and Jewish knowledge and balancing them in a modern Orthodox environment. What, what did you see Rabbi Lamb responding to? And you're saying it trickled down, but let's talk about the degree to which it succeeded and where are some places it still needs to go. Yeah. So I think you could say Rabbi Lamb's entire project as a leader, starting from when he was a pulpit rabbi in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, and, and through uh, his period running YU, really was about having Orthodox Judaism, traditional religion, respond to contemporary American life following the Second World War, which was a time of a lot of change for the Jewish community, and especially just generally, culturally, on the American scene, a lot of changes. So I think at every stage you can point to to the different phenomena he's responding to. In terms of why you, I, I think the question was, can we build a community of people who are very well educated in the secular sense and still deeply committed to their religion, which I think is what the ideology, or at least the educational approach of Torah Umada, Torah and, and general studies, as you said, uh, what that responds to, to make a religious virtue out of studying both. That secular studies is not just a means to an end, it's not just a way to become a doctor or a lawyer, which of course that's, you know, that's what one does. And to really value the education in itself, to have, see that as, as a religious value. And, and the volume, the book, Torah Umada, that, that Rabbi Lamb wrote, looked at multiple different models of this idea, of this interaction between Torah, Jewish learning, and secular wisdom, 
without going into all the details, the, the approach that he settled on was, uh, interestingly enough, the Hasidic approach. Ray Lamb himself descended from Hasidic stock and wrote a award-winning book on the topic, the Hasidic idea of sanctifying the profane, of taking secular things and making them holy, infusing them with holiness, incorporating them into one's religious life. That, at the end of the day, was the model that he preferred, as opposed to a Maimonidean model, you know, the more classical models, but this idea of, of sanctifying the profane. And that really was the project overall. How could orthodoxy, modern orthodoxy in the United States, many of whom were children of or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors coming to the United States, how could they build a life that was both traditional and uh, deeply engaged with the world? And his solution was to present it as this religious ideal of intellectual engagement, which trickle down and, you know, uh, many, many people coming out of why you became professionals rather than intellectuals as their day job. But uh, that ideology really permeated the institution and informed modern Orthodox life. So let's talk, Avi Tova, how do you think we're doing on Torah Mada in modern Orthodoxy? You're in different communities. You see things through different lenses. You have kids who you're bringing up. I mean, all four of us identify, I think. I'm not making this up because I've known all of you for a while. I think we all identify as Orthodox and likely modern Orthodox. How are we doing on this? I mean, I understand trickles down in the institution. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the privileges of it? How's it going? I think that it's hard to do, to live in the modern world and at the same time as embracing Torah values it's hard to make certain choices and to even at the most basic level to decide what are things that are just not able to be sanctified at all, like that are just not things that we do as halachic Jews. I think that's the, the biggest challenge before we even get to the question of how do we sanctify the secular world. Yeah, it's interesting when reading Rabbi Lamb's book on the topic, Torumada, you, you see him saying over and over again, look, you're going to confront ideas that are deeply antithetical to Torah and the way that it's classically been understood. And he, it seemed like he knew what those boundaries were, but I think we all know that those boundaries change over time in interesting ways. Right. So I think at the most basic level, educating our students and our kids that there are going to be boundaries is like number one before we even get to the question of how do we sanctify the things that are sanctifiable, so to speak, in our world. Yeah, that's interesting. Avi, what do you think? There are two things I want to resist in the description. I'm sure this comes as a shock to everybody here. Um, the first one is kind of the modern orthodoxy bit. So, you know, you read Rabbi Lamb's sermons. I don't think he liked let me rephrase. He said he's uncomfortable with the term modern orthodoxy. He didn't like it. I mean, it's one of my favorite quotes from like a late 60s sermon, how he, he disliked it when people say a person is religious but modern, spoken in exactly the same condescending tone as one would say he's slightly insane but sincere. Yes. And he says in the sermon, I think it's called, it's like the arrogance of modernism, like that he's uncomfortable with the term modern orthodoxy, like that there's something better because you're in, you're, you're now. And I think that's a very consistent theme certainly in his sermons, this idea of like privileging the now, this concern with like fads, intellectual fads, and his view that the content of Jewish learning is is timeless. And as a result to like privilege modernity, especially in terminology, was a deep mistake. You know, on the other piece of it, 
I think Shlomo's described Torah Mada, the way in which it is typically digested, and maybe the way in which Rabbi Lamb described it in the book. But, you know, some days I think to myself, it's less of like a theology than an attempt to describe a character trait. Like, we're just supposed to be constantly curious, and when we see new stuff, we want to learn about it. And, you know, life is a life of learning, and it doesn't matter what you're learning about. Not like you're synthesizing two things that aren't alike. We take this, you know, general studies and Judaic studies in the classroom, we try to bring them together. Like, almost as if if you're doing that, you've already lost the point is there's just supposed to be a constant curiosity. And if that's kind of at the core of it, then... You know, the Lamb legacy in some way could be evaluated as, is his community curious? Right. It's also interesting because, you know, he was such an intellectual. I remember when he came to speak to us in 10th grade, and he was teaching us about Maimonidean thought. And he was talking about how the center of service of God is the intellect and trying to intellectualize and cognize faith and belief. And I remember back then wondering to myself, like, you know, I'm looking around, and excuse me for saying, I'm looking around at 10th graders who are picking their noses. You know, not everybody in there is sort of the most intellectually curious person. It's interesting to think about how a model like this works when people really do have different characters, right? Some are going to be more intellectual than others, and some are going to be less. But I like the way you're putting this, Avi, of is there a curiosity that permeates, a curiosity about human conversation about issues, about questions that's permeating the Jewish community. And Tova, I, I identify with your point of how do you stay rooted in a teaching that we're saying is timeless, even as you express curiosity and interest in what's out there and whatever's out there and draw some boundaries. But as far as I understand, Rabbi Lamb was very good at setting boundaries and saying what he thinks. And I, I'm curious what we think about that right now in modern Orthodox communities. You know, how easy is it for someone to get up and say, here's the truth of what I think. This is what I want you to know. I am a religious leader. And, you know, I, I, there's a program here. I, I'm curious how well that's doing in the 21st century, because I think that's quite a challenge. I think that I was really privileged to actually see that in real time, which is perhaps more impactful than learning, you know, about the philosophy of Torah Mada, but really to see it in action. Like I saw my grandparents go to Broadway and go to the theater and read books and talk about ideas. And I think that learning through example, of course, is very powerful. And we know that. But I think that that's something that perhaps is of value to today's students and to our children to think about, like, how can we really model this for our kids in a way that is meaningful and real, as opposed to thinking about how can we approach this from an intellectual, textual perspective? Like, I think it's more powerful if we can think about what is the best way for us to to really show our kids what this looks like in real time. I think uh, in terms of sort of the post-Rabbi Lamb shift in the community known as modern orthodoxy, whatever one calls it, I think part of the issues that Tova and Alana, you both raised before, of people having different natures and different interests and this uh, super intellectual approach not necessarily working for everyone. So I think the model of both how education works at YU and the community more broadly has moved away from this core principle of thinking about Torah and secular studies and how they might interact and much more focused now on 
building the social aspects of the community and uh, modern orthodoxy as a good, comfortable, enjoyable place to live with, you know, peers you grow up with, you go to camp with them, uh, you go to college with them, you move into communities with them. Uh, that, that seems to be much more central to the modern Orthodox experience in a bunch of different ways, um, which on the one hand means it's more relatable. You don't need to be an intellectual yeah. Yeah. To, to relate to that. You know, back in the in the olden days, either you did Torah Madre or you talked about it or you talked about people who talked about it. That was sort of the dominant culture. <laughs> or you had them over for Shabbat dinner and right. listened to them talk about it. Right, right. But, you know, the, the it's moved away from that a bit. I think one way of illustrating this uh, is to think about Hasidut. Hasidism and its relationship to Wayu. Rabbi Lam, as we mentioned, was a scholar of Hasidut, published a book on it, brought in different professors to teach about it, and uh, he was very intellectual in the way he did that. You know, it's a book about their, the different theologies. It focuses on the earlier Hasidic masters and deals with really academic questions. And that's one way of engaging with Hasidut. And if you look at Wayu today, it's actually much more engaged with Hasidut, but completely on a social level. In a neo-Hasidut, that you sing the songs, Maybe you take some Hasidic practices, uh, but it's a good way of building group identity over a neo-Hasidut. If you read Hasidic books, they're the more contemporary self-help type of books, uh, the Nesivos Shalom and the like, rather than the more intellectual works. I think that really reflects the shift in YU. And I wonder how much these neo-Hasidic uh, students at YU even read or, or even know about Rabbi Lamb's more intellectual work, but it's really just two very different pictures of that institution and the modern Orthodox community at large. You know, it's such a great point that you're making because we talk so often about Jewish identity here at Hartman. And what you're describing is actually a thick Orthodox identity that's created through social engagement, affective, emotional experiences. And I know, you know, with my own kids, I'm always trying to give them affective experiences, right? I, I think that's key to developing who they are. And, you know, for us, sometimes that's intellectual and sometimes that's, you know, what we would call like pre-discursive, you know, like you don't have to talk about it. It, it just is, you have to be in it. Right, so the, it's a really interesting shift that you're modeling. Avi, I think you wanted to say something. Well, first I was going to ask Shlomo if he had any ideas, if there's a book out there, if he wanted to read more about Neo-Hasidut that he, he wanted to recommend. Oh, Shlomo, you're not going to take the bait here? I think that's what we're going to call a troll, everyone. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, this is, uh, I think, a, an attempted assist, so I'll, it is, I'll, I'll it dunk is, it. But he's, yeah. you know, the smile on his face, you can't see it, the people <laughs> listening, but the smile is he's doing Shlomo a big favor. Yeah, so the, there's an edited volume actually coming out of YU uh, and the Orthodox Forum series. The Orthodox Forum series started by Rabbi Lamb, one of the institutions he built at YU to, uh, <laughs> to pass well, on. They, this is what I'm saying. If people have, haven't heard of him before, they're missing a linchpin of modern Orthodox thought, literally. The Orthodox Forum, for people who don't know, it is a forum that happens annually to bring Orthodox thinkers does it not happen annually anymore or it doesn't uh, happen anymore? The last meeting was in 2015. Yeah, it hasn't happened. Okay, the last meeting was in 2015. Okay. But I can say having experienced it, it was an amazing place for people to come and think through theological, ethical, political, you name it, questions of the day, right? So you were saying, Orthodox Forum, go on. So this volume is coming out on uh, contemporary uses and forms of Hasidut, including 
some sociological studies at YU, elsewhere in the Orthodox community, new ways of engaging with Hasidut, some intellectual pieces, some more uh, sociologically oriented pieces. So yeah, thanks Avi for the- Edited uh, by Shlomo. I think we forgot the most important. I just want to point out that the four of us on this call are actually, I think, people who follow in the intellectual pattern of Torah and secular knowledge. We're also all very socially engaged, but one of the things that I think is quite interesting about the four of us is we kind of represent a group that drank that Kool-Aid in a big way, right? Am I wrong about that? Like we could have taken a totally different sample of people to talk about Rabbi Lamb's legacy, and they might not have been as excited about the fact that, yeah, he wrote plenty on Hasidism, but did you know that his doctoral dissertation was on the opposite of Hasidism, on Mitnagdic Lithuanian thought, the people who were literally against them. And like, we're jazzed by that because that's a person who's like thirsting for knowledge wherever it comes from. But it is interesting to think about where today's young modern Orthodox intellectuals fit in a move to a more social version, right? Like, I, I think it's a fair question to ask. I want to move to a different aspect of Rabbi Lamb's thought because we've alluded a little bit to the American context, right? And how Rabbi Lamb didn't want the now to be privileged, and yet he had a real sense of his context, both in the sense that Tova said, you know, post-war, what does post-war orthodoxy look like in America? But also, even when you read his Torah Umada, when you read that book where he was setting out, what's my ideology? He says, the only reason I can do this is because we're living in relative comfort, in America, so I can think about opening up to general knowledge and what does that even mean? And I'm curious, and Avi, I'm going to turn to you for this because of the work that you do on First Amendment religion and church and state, really, in America. I'm curious how you see his legacy on the way he thought Jews and Orthodox Jews fit into the broader American tapestry, right? Like, what are we contributing? Not just what are we taking and what are we saying is not for us. But like, what's our public voice? Who are we on the American skyline? So I've been reading Rabbi Lamb's sermons for as long as I can remember. Like my father would buy me birthday presents before the archive existed <laughs> online. Like my birthday That's present so was the Royal Reach, which you couldn't even find when I was interested in it. And my dad like tracked it down. Yeah, I stole my parents' copy, honestly. Yeah, Royal Reach is like one of the original, original, I want to say that's first, right. Yeah. It's the first collection of Rabbi Lamb's sermons. Also like a crazy thing. He wrote up his sermons and then like circulated them. And think about that, like he was doing that in the 60s. Like imagine what technologies were and weren't available to him and that he successfully like used his voice to permeate a community through his sermons, writing them making them available, like to the point where, you know, you can go online to the archive now and see like his little notes sometimes. on. Yeah. on uh, yes. And we'll put the archive link in the show notes because I think it's interesting for people to check out. It's just in and of itself. And so like I found like towards the end of my undergraduate years at Yeshiva University, I just found like great comfort reading those sermons before graduate school. That was like a big thing for me. And like that's why I was getting these strange birthday presents from my father. And, you know, you start noticing certain recurring themes and like I, you know, in my professional life, my academic life, I do a lot of studying of church-state issues, like we said a lot. And it was weird, like, how frequently those issues came up in his sermons. So, I, like, I started running searches on the archive, because it's the coolest thing in the world. You can just search for words. And there's just a ton in there, like, supreme interest in the separation of church and state. And that was weird to me, 
like initially. And, you know, you start like pulling the pieces together and you begin to realize kind of historically what some of the issues were. I mean, the 1960s when he's giving so many of these sermons, I mean, this is when orthodoxy is starting to be a thing. In the 50s, you know, most people assumed orthodoxy was just going to die. Well, I'm trying to remember when Barton's Chocolate got their Orthodox Union kosher symbol. I think it was in the late 50s. Well, I could be wrong, but I think it was. That was the turning <laughs> point. But I'm saying that turning it's point. the commodity. No, but it tells you something. Buying power. The arrival mm. of American Jewish Orthodoxy in America, that you can get Barton's chocolate. Yes, and my grandparents always had Barton's chocolate, by the way, the lolly cones on Pesach in their hotel room. There so. you go. There you go. Somebody will write a book about from Barton's to like the Oreo and like, <laughs> yeah. And then you clearly see the way in which over time he's trying to give voice to really a new movement in many ways, this some brand of American orthodoxy. And at least in like, when it comes to things like church-state separation, so you start to see like, as I think of it, two real concerns about what's going to happen to American orthodoxy. And the first one is this great concern he had that there was going to be this pressure to stop privileging Jewish interests in the way we spoke, in our values, and in our advocacy. That somehow, like, universal interests would trump Jewish interests at times that he thought were, like, deeply misguided and dangerous to Jewish continuity. And he talks about this a lot, repeatedly. Are there particular issues that he mentions? I mean, the one he hammers at again and again, and he called, this is like the courageousness of the sermons is just off the charts. You know, when your rabbi typically delivers a sermon and has a particular target, they don't mention them by name. And Rabbi Lamb would just go, he would just say, this institution did the following thing, it is bad and evil. And he would just, there it is, and then he'd print it, and then he'd share it, and, you know, he thought it was right, and that's what he did. And the issue in particular about government funding for Jewish day schools was so front and center mm. on his mind about the dangers wow. if schools didn't get funding and the idea that he had people sitting in his pews very clearly who were advocating for church-state separation and advocating that government funding shouldn't go to Jewish institutions. He could not wrap his head around it. And you could see he would be like fuming at the idea that you know these, what he would thought as faddish American interests would somehow trump Jewish interests. Now, he always had this really interesting caveat. Like, he also thought they were, like, a little bit wrong constitutionally. I've always wondered, like, if he thought they were right, you know, what would he have done? So there was, like, a deep integrity behind the argument that, like, not just, like, pure instrumental, but, like, also, like, this is an extreme argument, and I don't think you have this right. It's also crazy that he had a view on the First Amendment. Like, it's just the levels of knowledge are pretty astonishing. That was, like, the big one. And, you know, the, this is obviously, like, a deep, super contemporary issue. You know, to what extent do we privilege Jewish interests? And he was pretty unequivocal about it. He has these lines about just because you love your family more doesn't mean that you hate your friends. So he's balancing the particular interests with belonging. And he had a view on how to balance. And the other big one, he really was worried that, like, liberal, this is how he described it, liberal left of center advocacy was going to become its own theology that replaced Jewish theology. He, he has these metaphors all the time. The First Amendment is replacing the First Commandment. Wow. The Wall of Separation is replacing the Western Wall. You know, these very you know, evocative metaphors that it wasn't just that the advocacy was wrong, but what it was doing to like um, our internal theology. What was American orthodoxy? What was its theology going to be? And could American orthodoxy develop like its own unique 
brand of advocacy, a way to speak to America that wasn't just American. So it's so interesting because what you're saying makes me think of sort of presaging the fact that today politics has become religion for just about everybody in the Jewish community. Doesn't matter if you're right, doesn't matter if you're left. Politics is you're holding as close and you're angry at the person in shul next to you who disagrees with you, almost like, can we be praying together, right? It's a really, that's a really interesting thing. And at the same time, there's also a question of it. It sounds like just concerns about universalism and the comfort of American Jewish life leading to a dilution of the relationship between Orthodox Jews and their theology and observance and all of that. And I'm curious, Tova, like, the messaging that you got as a grandchild of someone who clearly cares about this, was that a front and center kind of message? You, know, you mentioned the, the difficulty of boundary making. How do you see that through this lens? Growing up, I don't think this was like necessarily a theme that we spoke about kind of one-on-one. -on -one. one of the things that I was thinking about as Avi was speaking is, for example, in the work that I do as a Yoetz of Halacha, Right. So my grandfather wrote A Hedge of Roses, a lecture series to the Young Married Club at the Jewish Center, some title of that sort. Um, and it became a book which was republished many times in many languages. And it basically makes the case for the observance of Tarat HaMishpacha, which I will term the laws of family purity. And he basically tries to make the case for the observance of mikvah and nida. So ritual immersion for menstruation. And it was basically, you know, at the point where this observance might be off the table. And mm. it's interesting to see, you know, how far we have come in terms of this particular area of observance, like from the 1960s until, you know, 2022, when people are not just observing these laws, but talking about them more and there's more conversation. So I think as a metric or in terms of how much progress we've made, I think that there's definitely been a lot of growth in terms of not abandoning certain practices in the face of, you know, secular culture and living in this country, etc. But one of the things also that I was thinking about was that in the sermons, which I know Avi has read through all of, and I have not read through every single one, but I hope to. Um, <laughs> Avi may be the real yes, grandchild. he might be. Yeah. But one thing that was so uplifting about them was that as much as he was brutally honest, as Avi mentioned, which is something that we don't really hear so much all the time. We hear a lot of feel-good sermons. We hear a lot of Torah-only sermons, which are amazing and important, but we don't hear like Musser, this is what you should do. This is what needs to be done. Call to action all the time because that's hard to hear. Well, you wanted the rabbi wants to keep their job. That's exactly. And, you know, he was living in a cancel culture like we are. So it's much scarier nowadays. And I, I can understand that. But as much as he was really honest with what the areas of growth were for us, uh, number one, it was laced with warmth and with a belief that we were actually capable of rising to greatness. And Alana, you had referenced when you heard my grandfather speak in 10th grade, I believe he spoke about Selah Melokim, which was a big theme. Being created in the image of God. He really believed that everyone was capable of rising to greatness. So despite the challenges he lay out for us of like, wow, this is where we are, this is where we need to get to, his sermons were uplifting because they made us feel like even though we have so many things to work on, we can actually achieve them. That's beautiful. 
Just to, to contextualize a bit, Avi spoke about the deep engagement that Roy Lamb had with the First Amendment, and Tova spoke about Roy Lamb's discussion of sexual ethics. So I think those are both there, but I think there's really multiple other areas where Rabbi Lamb was engaging with the issue of the day. So you know, there's the First Amendment, but there, he also wrote articles on the Fourth Amendment, on privacy, on the Fifth Amendment, about self-incrimination, comparing American law and halachic and Jewish law perspectives. His article on environmentalism, as that was yeah. trending in the 60s, 70s. He had an important sermon about civil rights and opposition to racism at that time. And uh, he wrote about, among all things, uh, extraterrestrial life. Yes. Right? And how that after the 60s. Stop and, me in my tracks. <laughs> after landing on the moon, how do we think about humanity? Maybe we're not unique in the world. Maybe there are other life forms. And uh, really at every turn, engaging with the issue of the day. So getting back to, I think, the point Avi said before, you know, the idea of you don't need to integrate in every case. You don't need to, you know, modern isn't always better. But what Rabbi Lamb did believe is that you always need to engage with the contemporary issue. He didn't shy away from tricky issues. I think he actually wrote one of the first issues on homosexuality in Jewish law in the uh, Encyclopedia Judaica yearbook, I think, in the 70s, in the late 70s. I didn't shy away from difficult issues and always engaged with them, bringing tradition to bear, whether his conclusion would be, you know, more traditionalist or more progressive. So that intellectual honesty and, and willingness to engage is a very important part of his legacy. And in each case, he really engaged with great depth. Let's talk about Rabbi Lamb and the American Jewish tapestry, because that is a little complicated. For a man who says what he thinks, he definitely was not a pluralist. And at the same time, he also did some really interesting things, like convene an interdenominational group to talk about conversion in Israel and who is a Jew in the late 80s. He had good relationships with leaders of other denominations. So I'm, I'm curious how you see that in his legacy. One thing that Roy Lamb did in terms of his relation with Jews of different denominations or subdenominations was, on the one hand, he was honest and was very clear uh, when and how he diverged from non-Orthodox groups and from Haredi or ultra-Orthodox groups. And, you know, there are some real controversies, some sharp statements that he said over the years. And at the same time, he took an approach, certainly for the non-Orthodox, that even if he wouldn't legitimate them, and he said, you know, one should be Orthodox, that was his view, he did recognize leadership of the non-Orthodox denominations. And he found a way to work together, both on the American scene and, Alana, as you mentioned, on the Israeli scene, and with the ultra-Orthodox community as well. In his uh, Torah Umad, he said there is legitimacy to an approach that rejects any secular studies. So I think he had some degree of pluralism. I think he liked to quote one of his books is titled 70 Faces, based on the Talmudic saying there's 70 faces to Torah. So Rylam used to say there are 70 faces to Torah, but that 71st facet, that, that uh, you know, there's something that's beyond the pale. So I think he balanced that idea of including on the one hand and also being clear about what he thought was outside. I mean, you can imagine for someone who has great courage and confidence in his understanding of the Jewish tradition and is also very curious, is always looking to understand more the way in which, you know, these kinds of issues become fraught, like your two impulses are fighting against each other. I always want to know more about, you know, what this person's doing, how they do it, and at the same time, having very strong views about what's right and wrong. Um, When you think about where he got criticism over time. You know, I have always found the criticism from the right, right right-wing orthodoxy, um, Haredi orthodoxy, so to speak, 
he used to get pit all the time, certainly when I was at Yeshiva University, like Rabbi Lamb is this, you know, centrist orthodoxy or modern orthodoxy or all the terms he didn't like. And, you know, as opposed to Haredi orthodoxy. And it rang hollow to me because as Shlomo just mentioned, like he saw that as completely legitimate. And not just that, he saw like you're dealing with two communities who are, are, are learning communities, you know, curious, engaged in study. Like to me, when you read kind of his legacy, the, the antithesis of the Lamb legacy isn't like right-wing orthodoxy or left-wing orthodoxy. It's people who like don't care. It's, it's, it's people, it's apathy. It's people who aren't curious. It's it's materialism, and and this kind of longstanding like feud that would be fomented from time to time, seemed to like completely miss the boat. The antithesis of Rabbi Lamb isn't being Haredi. The antithesis is materialism and apathy. And your curiosity takes you where it takes you, um, whichever community you're in. I thank you all for being on the show today. I actually want to end with just a quote of Rabbi Lamb's from an interview that he did from 1990. It's an interview for the Jewish Review on Torah and Secular Knowledge, because I think it really does sum up some of what we've been talking about, not only as Rabbi Lamb's legacy, but also as some of the challenges posed to modern Orthodox identity today. He says, I should point out that all Torah umada, or Torah and general wisdom is based upon the belief that the world of culture outside of Torah is not necessarily a friend or an enemy, and you must neither dismiss it with contempt and fight it, nor embrace it without reservation. But on the contrary, you have to be both critical and respectful of it. And it is this sort of engagement which is what we stand for. And that is not an easy position to hold, and it is not an easy position to articulate for the masses, for people who want to have as much passion in their Jewish observance and their Torah learning as he did. And yet, I think the four of us are people who find that incredibly inspiring and appealing. And whether that's trickled down to be somewhat different and some of the face of that has changed, there is no question that that is still a balance that is desirable at the heart of modern orthodoxy. So thank you so much for being with us to discuss Rabbi Lamb's legacy and the structures and vision that he left behind. Thank you everyone for listening to our show. Special thanks to my guests, Tova Warburg-Sinensky, Avi Helfand, and Shlomo Zakir. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and edited by M. Lewis Gordon with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhevet Schwartz and music provided by So Called. Transcripts of our shows are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We're always looking for ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. So if you have a topic that you'd like to hear about, or if you have comments about this episode, please write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can also rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. Subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Bye.